All right, so um, I'm actually here for two weeks. Uh, we're doing this little two-part, uh, like a little mini-series called Deadwood. And uh, Deadwood, not based on the TV show. I've actually never seen the TV show. Um, it's about actual dead wood. So if you're not familiar with what that is, that's limbs, that's down trees, it's brushes, it's leaves uh, that accumulate along a forest floor. So even in the healthiest, most vital, thriving forest, uh, we live in a fallen world and there's just a certain amount of death that comes from life. And there is dead wood that accumulates on the forest floor. And that forest, all that dead wood, uh, as it builds up, sort of blankets the forest floor and it has a way of sort of suffocating the vitality and the health of the forest. Now, um, Mother Nature has a way of taking care of this particular problem. I hope you're picturing Deadwood with me. This can, you got to kind of stay with me, especially these first couple minutes, so don't space out on me yet. Um, Mother Nature has a way of taking care of this Deadwood that accumulates on the forest floor. They're these naturally occurring forest fires. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the devastating ones that set the forest back decades that are, you know, that just destroy everything in sight. Instead, these are different fires that burn low and under control, and they burn out the Deadwood to keep it from suffocating the life of the forest. Now, um, in our national parks, I think these people are so impressive, the people who manage and run our national parks, um, they made a big deal uh, about not uh, causing forest fires and preventing forest fires, and you guys know about Smokey. Um, our boy Smokey uh, did too good of a job, believe it or not, because in our national parks, there's this growing problem where too, they're so good at preventing forest fires that too much deadwood actually accumulates on the forest floor. And that creates two really big problems. One, it sort of suffocates the life of the forest, as we've already said. But the other thing is, when there is a naturally occurring fire, when lightning strikes or there's an errant spark or somebody flips a cigarette butt or whatever, and there's a lot of dead wood on the forest floor, that means there's lots of fuel to burn, which means that fire does not burn low and under control. It burns hot and it becomes one of those devastating fires that wipes out the forest and sets it back decades and strips out the topsoil and just destroys the whole ecosystem for who knows how long. And so when you get too much dead wood accumulating, then you're like one spark away from scorched earth and, and devastation. All right, you guys still with me? Nod, nod. Okay, I'm, I need nods. You don't have to like shout glory or wave a hanky or say amen even, but if you nod, I'll just feel so much better up here. All right, and I will ask for it. I'm not shy about it. All right, so with that in mind, um, we're kind of, the same way, like if we think of our lives and our relationships as, as a forest, um, here's the thing, even in that healthiest, most vital of all forests, it's a fallen world, there's a certain amount of death that comes from life. And uh, deadwood accumulates in the form of our sin and our brokenness and our frailty and our relationship messes that this just seem to come one right after another and the baggage that we all sort of carry along. And if we are wise, we will find a way to purge along the way or the dead wood, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, it will accumulate. And when you get too much dead wood accumulating, it suffocates the life and, and it leaves you one spark away, one lightning strike away from scorched earth. 
Um, and so we have to find ways to address our own accumulation of deadwood or we will be tinderboxes. Now, um, the National Park Service, I said earlier, they're really impressive. It's incredible to me that they did that good a job preventing forest fires, that now deadwood is a problem. Um, now they've learned that they can keep that deadwood from accumulating if they do something that they call a controlled burn. The people who've worked so hard to prevent forest fires will actually intentionally start forest fires and they call it a controlled burn, or I like this even better, um, a prescribed fire. Um, but it is those prescribed fires are the ones that burn low and under control, and they purge out the dead wood before it suffocates the whole thing or before it accumulates and it can destroy the whole thing. And what is amazing, and you can research this, I think I sort of geeked out on this, but what's amazing is after that prescribed fire, um, the whole forest just flourishes. It comes alive. The whole ecosystem thrives, the whole, the whole deal. So here's where I'm going with this and maybe, maybe or hopefully you already know where I'm going with this. Um, we need prescribed fire in our lives. We have dead wood that accumulates through our brokenness and our relationships, the messes that we incur, our own sinfulness. And so we need prescribed fire to purge it out along the way. Now, uh, the Bible gives us at least a couple of ways to do this. So we're going to do one this week and one next. And I'm just, just going to tell you now in advance, because I love you, you're not going to like this first one, okay? You are not going to like it. Um, but that's not because it's bad. Um, it's because it's challenging. And it's because it is like almost completely misunderstood by a lot of folks. What we're going to talk about now, again, people avoid it like it's the plague, but it's a gift. It's a, people treat it like a curse, but it's a gift. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to talk about repentance. Repentance. Now, um, think about that word repentance. Think about what that word means to you. And let me ask you a question. Um, and then I want you to answer that question and hold that answer in your mind and we'll come back to it at the end. So here's the question. If you locked yourself away in a room for two hours and did nothing in that room for two hours but repent, here's my two questions. Number one, what would you do in there for two hours while you do nothing but repent? And my second question is, how would you feel when you came out of that room. After, again, two hours of doing nothing but repenting. Hold on to your answers in your mind and then we'll come back to it. Now, um, there's this guy, uh, a preacher guy from a long time ago. His name is George Mueller. I think he's the first guy to say that, to say what I'm about to say. I just know for sure it wasn't me. There's nothing original here. But um, we can think of our relationship with God as having two connections. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you can think I have two connections with God. The first is your salvation. And as you picture that, picture the connection between you and God, that the connection that is your salvation as like this massive, indestructible cable that connects you to God. Nothing from the outside could possibly sever this incredible, massive cable. That's your salvation with the Lord. But there's a second connection with the Lord. And we do not think of it as a massive, indestructible cable. Think of that as like a string of dental floss or a little flimsy thread uh, that can be very easily severed. And that second connection is like our day-to-day -day fellowship with God. 
our, our communion with him, the relational day-to-day. And we're gonna do go up and down on that front. We remain saved throughout that. We have this massive indestructible cable that connects us to God, but our ongoing fellowship with him, our closeness, and even this word that maybe makes you uncomfortable, but our intimacy with him, that's the second connection. And repentance is such a big deal because repentance is the key to both of those connections. So, um, man, if, if you come to Jesus, uh, the scripture makes it very clear, you do that by way of repentance. And repentance literally means to turn away. So you're saying, God, I recognize the ways in which I haven't gone your way and I wanna turn away from that and go your way. So there's surrender sort of buried in this word that is repentance. And so essentially we get saved by repenting and that's what establishes this massive indestructible cable that connects us to God, but it's also the process of ongoing repentance that connects and as need be along the way, reconnects and reconnects that second more fragile connection that is our fellowship. It clears a path with God, between God and us on an ongoing way. Let me read you a couple of verses. Listen really closely and just take them plainly for what they're saying. This is Isaiah 59, one and two. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. It's like, of course God can hear you, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. So iniquity is another word for sin. Your sin separates you from God. It creates this distance between you and him. And then it goes on to say, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So our sin, it's very clear. It separates us from God. It hides his face from us so that we can't see him and it keeps him from hearing us. Separation, we can't see him. He can't hear us. That's deadwood. And repentance is going to God humbly. It's admitting your sin and it's asking him to remove all the dead wood that is built up between you and him that separates you, that keeps him from hearing you, that keeps you from seeing him. And if you don't have an ongoing practice of repentance, then you end up kind of stuck. There's this uh, old school preacher guy, Charles Spurgeon, from a long time ago, but a heck of a preacher. And um, somebody asked him a question one time about a theological debate, and we're not going to have the debate today. But the question is, can you ever lose your salvation? And somebody asked Spurgeon, can a genuine Christian ever lose your salvation? His answer was no, a genuine Christian can never lose their salvation. But when you get on the ship, he explains salvation as getting on a ship, okay? A ship that leads all the way to heaven. He says, once you get on that ship, it goes all the way to heaven and nobody ever jumps ship. But that doesn't mean that you can't on the first day fall down, break every bone in your body and spend the whole trip in the infirmary. A life lived, a Christian life lived without a practice of ongoing repentance is at the very least choosing to spend the whole trip busted up in the infirmary and missing out on the beauty and the joy of the ride. Like it's really, really important. Nevertheless, uh, we still tend to avoid repentance for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it's a prescribed fire and fire's fire. It's hot. It's not fun. It's a difficult thing to do. And I'm about to build a case that it's not nearly as bad as we make it out to be, but I'm not going to say that it's this great fun either. There's a challenge to repentance and we tend to avoid it. And the biggest reason why I think, and this is really the second reason, is, is we, we default, I think, to a large degree um, to Old Testament forms of repentance that do not account for the cross. So, um, 
I, I don't know how many Sunday school rats we have in the room, but I, I'm one of them. I'm a church kid, like big time. And I remember growing up in church, um, especially as we read the Old Testament, we learned a lot about repentance, okay? Repentance is in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there was this other kind of repentance that actually is just in the Old Testament. Um, and it's called repenting in sackcloth and ashes, does that ring a bell for anybody? You wanna nod your head to let me know? Cool, cool, cool. Okay, so repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And so what I figured out as a kid is you've got like regular repentance for regular sin, and then you've got uber repentance for uber sin, all right? That's when you repent in sackcloth and ashes. That's when you've really screwed up. That's when God's had it up to here and the whole thing's about to explode. That's when you repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now, um, I wanna take just a second here and lay out for you the symbolism behind repenting in sackcloth and ashes, okay? Um, First, sackcloth. Sackcloth is a material that people would, would wear and it was symbolic of mortification of the flesh or like a way of punishing yourself. And it was symbolic of shame and here's why. So sackcloth is, is kind of like um, burlap, but even thicker and coarser and pricklier. And so people would wear it against their skin and it was literally painful to wear it. It was painful to wear it. It wasn't intended to be clothing, but people used it as clothing and they did it as a way to punish themselves to show how sorry they were. Let me read you a verse Isaiah 53, verse five, but he, that's Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The deal is the punishment for all of your sin and mine was already poured out on Jesus through the cross. And so this idea that we would hold on to the memory of our sin and then punish ourselves for it doesn't make any sense in light of the cross. And I've never seen any of you, and I don't expect I will ever see any of you wearing sackcloth around and wailing about. It'll probably never happen. But I bet a whole bunch of you have been guilty of holding on to your sin and finding ways to punish yourself for the wrongs that you have done as you wallow in your guilt. The second reason people wear sackcloth, I said it was mortification. The second is shame. Um, the reason why it was about shame is because it was a way of publicly humiliating yourself. You're walking around wearing sackcloth. And remember, sackcloth is uber repentance for uber sin. And you're saying to everyone, I didn't just sin, I uber sinned. It's like a big scarlet letter. And it would intentionally trigger to everyone else, you should look down upon me with shame. That was the point. Romans 10, 11 says this, anyone who believes in him, Jesus, will never be put to shame. And so along with the punishment, for our sin, the shame for our sin was also put on Jesus through the cross. It doesn't make sense after Christ is risen. Second is ashes, sackcloth and ashes. Um, and that's symbolic of our mortality and of mourning. So um, ashes are symbolic of our mortality, that we're all gonna die. Uh, we've tick tock on all of us, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, right? And to the ashes and the dust we will return. So it is a reminder of our frailty and our brokenness. But Isaiah 15 says that our mortality has put on immortality. So yes, outside of Christ, we are doomed to death. <laughs> With Jesus on this side of the cross, 
we've literally put on immortality like a robe and we have, when you read eternal life in the Bible, it literally means life of the ages. We have life of the ages because of Jesus. And the second reason or, or symbolism behind the word ashes is mourning. And what people would do is they would put on sackcloth and they would find a bed of ashes like after a fire and they would literally roll around in it uh, which would be really painful because of the sackcloth and they would wail and they would mourn and they would weep because of the wretchedness of their sin. Isaiah 61 says, we have beauty for ashes and we have joy for mourning. Again, sackcloth and ashes does not make sense on this side of the cross. It's just an Old Testament principle but I find a lot of people pulling it into a New Testament reality. Again, I've never seen, and we'll probably never see any of you wearing sackcloth and ashes, but many of us are guilty of trying to find ways to bring shame upon ourselves, to, on, to punish ourselves in an ongoing way. That's repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And we tend to see repentance as a, as a punishment, um, as like this penance that you have to pay for doing something that God doesn't approve of, but I want us to see that denies the power of the cross. Now, I'll be clear about this point. God, he does discipline us. God does discipline. But please don't miss this. Repentance is not part of it. Repentance, a practice of repentance on an ongoing nature, this is not a part of our punishment. And when we think of it as punishment, it gives birth to what I call, and maybe you've heard this term, morbid Repentance. And that goes back to the whole sackcloth and ashes thing, the whole self-punishment. Really, if you think about it, it's a way of earning grace, of showing God just how pious you are and how wrecked you are by your sin. And as a result, he should offer forgiveness because of it. That's morbid repentance, proving how pious you are. So um, this reminds me of a dumb story. Um, uh, I'm a dad, I got a couple kids and uh, a lot of dads figure out ways that they can rough house with their kids and it'd be relatively safe, at least for the kids. And uh, Bryce and I worked this out. Uh, Bryce is here with me today. I wouldn't do this now because he's big enough to scare me. Uh, but at the time he was six and he came up with something called, this was our sort of set of rules that made it okay for dad and, and him to, to, to rough each other up a little bit. And he called it wrestle fight, which is not creative, but he was like three when he came up with that. So cut him some slack. Wrestle fight, these are the rules. I would stand at the foot of the bed Bryce would stand on the bed, and so that would get us close to eye to eye, right? And then we would do something like boxing. We'd spar around a little bit, and he was allowed to hit me as hard as he wanted wherever he wanted, and I would sort of land some glancing blows that made no impact whatsoever. And so basically, I would endure punishment until I decided I was sick of it, and then I would scoop him up and pick him up over my head like this, as high as I could. And then I would drop him, but I wouldn't just drop him. On the way down, I would catch him and slam him on the bed as hard as I could. And then he would bounce. And sometimes if I was really fired up, I would like, we had a really bouncy bed that we did it on. I would like dribble him. I could do it like two or three times. And he just thought it was hysterical. It was great. And he wanted to do it for hours, but we didn't because daddy got tired and sore. But that's what we would do. That was wrestle fighting. Well, one day we're wrestle fighting and it's, it's loud. It's a whole ruckus. And and um, Bryce is six at the time. And Brianna, my little girl, she's four at the time. She walks in and she stands at the door and she's watching. And she is doing the whole like, 
uber cutesy little girl thing. And if you know Brianna, that's nonsense. That's not her vibe at all. But she's putting it on thick. And I'm like, hey, Bri. And she goes, dad, dad. And she, look, she was four. She still baby talked at four. Um, but she like baby talked way more than she needed to. She laid it on really, really thick. And she goes, dad, dad, I want a wrestle fight. And I was like, all right, let's go. I'll throw down. Come on. And she goes, no, no, dad, dad. She goes, you have to be gentle. I'm a girl. And I was like, I, nonsense. I don't care about anything, but get up here. I'll throw down. Let's go. And she's like, well, daddy, I was like, all right, all right, I'm not going to hurt you. Come on. So she hops up on the bed. And like I said, I would stand at the foot of the bed and Bryce would be right next to me. Well, I'm standing at the foot of bed and she's at the head of the bed, as far away from me as she can get. And she's acting like she's real scared and tentative and oh no, and all this cutesy nonsense. And I'm like, Bryce and I are like, what are you doing? I'm like, come on, let's go. I was like, baby, I'm not going to hurt you. Let's go. And she goes, daddy, be gentle. I was like, I'll be gentle. Come on. And then she looks up at me. And this look of rage and fury, I mean, it was demonic, comes over her face and she starts screaming and she charges and she starts flailing and biting and punching. She punched me in the face with a closed fist. She bit me. She pulled my hair. I mean, she unleashed hell. I mean, the fury of a thousand sons. And Bryce and I were like, oh, we're like freaking out. So I don't put up with that for long at all. And I pull her and get her way up high. And she goes, wait, 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 wait. Dad, dad, be gentle. Because I'm a girl. And I slammed her on the bed. As hard as I could, I slammed her so hard. And of course, she was fine. Now, um, this is weird and dumb. But okay, so morbid repentance kind of works like that. And here's why. Here's why. Your sin, your guilt, your shame, the condemnation that comes from the devil himself, it will attack you with the fury of a thousand suns. It will relentlessly attack you with all of its fury, and then it will insist that you can't fight back. It will say, I know you did all those things. I saw you do all those things. You know you did all those things. You deserve every horrible thing that comes to you. You have no right to stand up for yourself. You have no right to push back. So you just have to take it. And the answer is, well, then you lay there and you wallow in it. Sackcloth and ashes, you wallow in it. That's how morbid repentance works. 1 John 1, 9, listen closely. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Think about what that word means. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, the work that Jesus did on the cross makes him forgiving you just. It's the right thing. And so you don't have to put on some sort of pathetic, uber-religious show in order to convince Jesus to do the right thing. He literally died so that he could forgive you and restore you. You do not have to coerce him into giving you the thing that he died in order for you to have. And groveling and begging and sackcloth and ashes, all of this is just trying to add to the finished work of Jesus. It's trying to earn forgiveness. Now look, I'm gonna be really, really clear and don't miss this part. We still grieve our sin. If the spirit of Christ lives within you, 
if you have any ongoing fellowship with the Lord, you will and you must grieve your sin. But hear me on this. Grieving is not the point. Grieving is just the catalyst. It's not about wallowing in it. It's about being lifted from it. That's what repentance does. Brian Chappelle, uh, as a pastor, he said this, repentance, listen, repentance ultimately furthers our joy. Just as we cannot enter into true repentance without sorrow for our guilt, we cannot emerge from true repentance without joy for our release from shame. So I asked you guys at the beginning, let's say you locked yourself in a room for two hours and you did nothing but repent. And the first question I asked is, what would you do in there? And the second was, how would you feel when you were done? Well, here's the thing. If it was biblical repentance, the way God, in, like New Testament repentance, what you would do in there is you would, with courage and humility, look to your father and name the ways in which you have failed, honestly owning your shortcomings. And then you would preach the gospel to yourself. You would look to the cross and the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice. And you would remember the power of the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. And you would accept his grace. And you would accept his forgiveness. And you would accept his full restoration. And how would you feel when you were done? You would feel incredible. You would feel absolutely wonderful. Do you guys remember this is just a few weeks ago? There was a uh, there was a sheep that got away from uh, its its uh, group. I think we have a picture of the sheep. Um, this is a sheep that got away. His name was uh, they named it Ba Rock, like Barack Obama, but with two A's. It was a pun. It's all right. Okay, so they named him Barak, and uh, he had gotten away from his people for a long time. And as a result, um, his wool had grown a lot, and he had picked up a lot of sundry things. And that added up to 75 pounds worth of that stuff that he was carrying around with him everywhere they went. And then through this pretty arduous process, they were able to shear that all off. So let me show you the after picture. Here's the the next picture. (laughs) That's the before and after. If ever I have seen a picture of the before and after of biblical repentance... It's that. It clears the deadwood, all of the baggage that we're carrying. It's a prescribed fire that clears the way. Uh, the band's going to come on up and they're going to help us sort of bring this home. Um, and while they're settling in, and with maybe that image in mind, I, I want to remind you of something I said at the beginning, which is that we have these these two connections between us and God. One being our salvation, remember this, the indestructible cable, the other one being our fellowship with God, 
the sort of fragile one that has to be guarded and maintained, the one that's easily severed. And as I said, maybe you'll remember, the key to both of those is repentance. And so uh, we're going to have a Selah, something we do every week, a time to think, a time to reflect, a time to pray, a time hopefully to make the messages personal as we possibly can and to apply it as directly to our lives as we possibly can. And I'll get us started in that prayer, but if I can, I'd like to sort of direct that prayer just a little bit and encourage you to consider those two connections and whether or not um, you've made those connections. The first, repentance, that is our salvation. That moment where we turn to the Lord with the cross in view and we recognize our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, and we realize, "I, I can't do this on my own like that that sheep who was just hopeless and helpless he needed help from someone greater than him to cut him loose from all that he was carrying and so we come to the lord with repentance and say i'm not enough on my own i acknowledge my sin that i've not gone your way i want to go your way so it's a moment of surrender that kind of repentance that's the kind that saves your soul that makes this eternal connection between you and him so I would like for you to consider whether or not you've made that connection. And the second connection, of course, is that, that fragile one. I'd say there's a good chance there's some folks in the room who would say, like, I, I know I've made that first connection. I mean, he's my savior. I'm lost without him. I'm hopeless without him. I know that. But if you were honest and you evaluated the state of that second connection, between you and God, the the fellowship, the communion, the intimacy. You might look at that and go, there's not really all that much of that going on. And if so, I I would tell you yet again that ongoing repentance is the key. It is the key to that second connection being made and maintained and guarded course we're going to fail so much along the way God's made a way to restore the connection so that our sin doesn't separate us from him it doesn't keep us from seeing him and him from hearing us so maybe we could make a commitment to that end as we have a moment here to pray let me get us started King Jesus we welcome your presence all the more We acknowledge your greatness and your beauty. We acknowledge we have no capacity whatsoever to save ourselves. It's only by repenting, by coming to you and seeking your grace and your favor that we can be saved. And so God, if there's anyone who hasn't done that, I pray that they would repent, turning to you now as Savior and Lord. God, let it be. God, let it be. For any others among us, Lord, who would say, I know that I am a follower of Jesus, but there's just not a lot of intimacy. There's not a lot of fellowship. I pray that the truth would resonate deeply with them, that the key to that is repentance. I pray that a desire for that fellowship would grow inside. Right now, we we would find 
bubbling up. Like, I gotta have that. I need that. I need that. I wanna walk with Jesus every day. I don't wanna just know that I stamp some sort of eternity card and I'm good. I wanna know him. I wanna walk with him. Lord, forgive us from, the, from maybe holding on to the ideas that that might be some sort of a punishment to repent and see it instead as a gift. May we commit to that end now.